Judaism is really good at a, at, a, at a handful of things, and one of the things it's really good at is, is putting forward this model of civil discourse. Welcome to Trending Jewish. I am Rachel Burgess, here with my co-host and colleague, Brian Schwartzman. How you doing? You know, for a while we were trying to do this whole, like, Seinfeld thing and like this Newman and Jerry going, you know, hello, Newman. Hello, Jerry. And it just never worked. And Brian's just too nice of a person. But here we are. And um, I'm really excited about our next guest. I mean, I've been excited about all of our guests, but I'm, I'm, I'm also particularly excited about this guest. So I'm going to let you do the introduction, Brian. Me? Well, I'm pretty excited about our next guest. Uh, Next guest too. Um, I feel like every time I walk into his office or he walks into mine, a podcast breaks out. Uh, I agree. So we have to we have to deliver on that a little bit of pressure. But um, our guest is today is Rabbi Maurice Harris, who is the assist- assistant director of affiliate support here at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and Jewish Reconstructionist Communities and a varied career um, up so far. He's the author of two books, including both from Cascade Press, Moses, uh, a, a Stranger Among Us, and uh, Leviticus, you have, you have No Idea, which really attempt to make the biblical text uh, relevant to today's day and age. And we just kind of thought we would shoot the breeze. I mean, this whole podcast... Um, We've we've gone against against type, but uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna get to a interesting unplanned destination. So, welcome to our show, Maurice. Thank you so much. Should we should we call you Rabbi on air? No, Maurice is fine. Okay, we will we will stick. Okay, <laughs> Rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like something from 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 when I was a kid that I should call a Rabbi. Rabbi and their last name, and 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 nobody from, does that anymore. Well, from this growing up in the South, it was always Miss or Mister. Like you never called an adult by their first name, which is also very strange. Which was also a very strange transition here, because not only was I not calling somebody like, you know, Mister Harris, it can't be like Rabbi Harris or Rabbi Maurice. So, I once had a fourth grade Hebrew school teacher. This was before rabbinical school who never could remember my name and when speaking directly to me referred to me in the third person like he would say hey the guy and then he would ask me something huh was there a big pedagogical thing behind that do you think i or, have or was no just a quirk or he he was he the only other thing i remember him saying one day when he literally could not stay in his seat was I'm bouncy ball. I had four Snicker bars, and that explained a lot to me. I'm kind of curious also, like, do you feel like sometimes when you go out into public that you kind of have to hide the the rabbi title where you can't tell people that you're a rabbi because all of a sudden they're going to either get into a very deep intellectual, like, questioning the universe or confess that they don't really keep kosher and they really love to eat bacon in the morning do you feel like you have to avoid that telling your title only on an airplane (laughs) because that can really become a 
you know, five hour prison sentence. Um, if, if, if it's for who, for who, like, are they just like, worried I, that you're gonna, like... I, I am only worried about myself in this instance. Uh, I suppose <laughs> Wait, it could do be... we, this is totally, see, this is totally not where I envisioned this going, but now I'm, uh, now I'm intrigued. Like, do we have examples I'm sorry, of getting, I'm, I'm... getting cornered on a plane or getting, getting told some crazy story and, and what was the craziest conf- and... what was the craziest confession you've ever gotten on in one of those talks i don't think i've actually gotten a, a confession uh i i've gotten uh, people who have really strong religious convictions uh sometimes will will feel compelled to really share like every thing that they feel think and believe mm-hmm. um with me, and sometimes there's a. It has felt like there's a little bit of a competitive uh, or testing kind of vibe to it, particularly if they're you know coming from another faith tradition that that tends to proselytize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then other people, it's just been uh, that that they've wanted to um, the, you know, totally innocuous, like just people wanting to share a lot about their personal life, which ordinarily I'd be happy to, to do. But if I happen to be really tired or, uh, you know, just wasn't really mentally prepared um, for, you know, a four hour pastoral counseling visit with somebody who's <laughs> practically sitting on top of me, um, you know, then um, then it's, it's just a little bit of a professional hazard. So what do you tell people? Do you like when somebody asks what you do? Do you do tell I lie? <laughs> Not as I have I lied. I have. And because... this is the confessions of the confessions of the rabbi. That's actually the subtitle of this. Yep. Um... I have most recently. I think I said, "Oh, I work for uh, I work for a graduate school, and I I work in one of their departments that creates programming." That's not really lying. That's just being vague. Correct. I it was. I suppose I I I was lying by omission, in, or just only sharing a part of the truth. Do you ever do you ever feel like you have to the the other way that you you really wanted to put it out there in a public setting that you're a rabbi? I mean, now that we're that's such an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I can't really. Th- think of a situation where what was going through my mind was everybody stop I'm a rabbi I'm a doctor you know, like, um, I, under control yes I can help here um, I I know of a colleague who had a real life experience where somebody said is there a rabbi in I, the when house it was a really sad experience oh, um, no. but yeah where, where so she was in a severe pile-up car accident um, and she was okay but literally somebody was jogging up and down amongst the cars saying there's a person in one of the cars who is very seriously injured possibly dying and who wants to talk to a rabbi is is, is anyone here a rabbi and she was like Oh my. I'm a rabbi, and she went and just sat holding this person's hand while they passed away. Wow. 
I have no idea how to how to follow up on that. So I think I'm gonna. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm I, gonna go. You want to say something? Oh no, I just I guess to transition to what I think you're gonna ask. I mean, I think um, to kind of get out of that heaviness. I think it's like interesting how um, your your training, especially, has. I think prepared, you know, members of the clergy and you especially to be able to step up in these situations and have this like clear head to be like a vessel when somebody's in there um, in this time. It also it seems like almost at the drop of the hat, you go from being a normal everyday person who likes movies and baseball and football and you have to kind of snap your fingers and get into, all right, let's connect to the universe together and let's connect to the divine together. And that's beautifully put. Uh, that's a, well, thank that, you for doing it. I, I mean, I think it's a, I think that you're right. And I think that it's something that clergy of all faiths, uh, who get opportunities to hang out together, um, talk about, um, that it's that it's one of the most extraordinary aspects of of doing this kind of work, and it, the program at RRC was very rigorous in in its um, training component. There was a lot uh, expected uh, and a lot of time s- set aside for doing different kinds of pastoral uh, internships and receiving supervision, both with an individual and in a group setting, um, as well as coursework uh, accompanying it. And it's it's one of the things that the rabbinical college here has a, a pretty strong reputation around. Um, and I, for sure, I, it, it, it's training and, and it's, it's like what I've heard other people who have other kinds of rigorous training describe that when the situation suddenly comes up that, that requires you to respond from the training that uh, it, it just automatically clicks. takes over. Yeah. So I think I've got a question that I'm not, I can't credit to, uh, I can't credit to myself. I'm, I'm cribbing this question, um, cribbing this question, I guess, uh, uh, done by these guys, uh, Daniel Liebson and uh, Lex Rofus. They put it this way. They, they, they asked, tried to flip the question of why be Jewish to more of an active question of what is, what is Judaism for? What does Judaism do? And I guess we can, you know, sub-sec that as what is what is non-orthodox? What does non-halachic Judaism do? Is that is that is that a ridiculous question? Is that a selfish question? Does that does that question take you anywhere interesting? I think it's a really interesting question, and. What is Judaism for or what can liberal Judaism do? Um, It seems like that it's like almost like one of the new roles of the rabbi where I think before, you know, it was almost implied that if you were Jewish, you join a synagogue, you um, send your kids to Hebrew school, they get a bar bat mitzvah. Um, they, you know, you, you marry somebody Jewish and you have, you know, like there was like this pattern and nowadays we're kind of not wedded to that form anymore so you're not just a member of the clergy anymore you're not just doing pastoral care you're not just leading services but it seems like also part of your job now is to advocate why like why even be Mm -hmm. like 
why Judaism? I mm-hmm. guess why? Yep. But if we're if we're really being selfish, Anna, what what does my country do for me? Not what do I do for my country? Outlook like what you know what can what can Judaism do for me? I mean, clearly, you know, rituals related to mourning and death and dying are very very effective and seem seem to comfort even even those who might not have the strongest connections but what you know what else uh you know what else can someone get out of really you know engaging with this stuff if if you don't if you don't believe that god you know god commands you to do it and there'll be consequences if you don't follow god's commandment i'm just thinking over all of this and um the the thought that's recurring for me is i think what judaism does is it offers a countercultural way of being in north american society and um i think it's a it's it's not a rigid counterculture um particularly and and in liberal judaism it's it's especially not a rigid counterculture but it's starting with some different core values and premises than let's say wider mainstream american culture and it's offering i think a way to be part of north american culture and society but not be sort of limited to the unhealthy habits that are that are very much a part of broader american culture it it's liberal judaism and i would say judaism as a whole really does offer um, a countercultural way of being and not just a countercultural way of being by yourself, but um, a way of being in community. Um, And I think that in an era of open society, science, the collapse of um, traditional sources of authority um, a- across the board, um, I don't think it's a selfish question because I think everyone has to. Everybody who doesn't grow up in a in a very very tightly controlled bubble um, has to, as an adult, choose their communities, their identity, their to some extent their 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 spiritual or religious community of meaning. Um, and, you know, uh, for me, I'm always tempted to compare, you know, what liberal Judaism sort of has to teach, say, offer, and what, what rhythms and practices it, it promotes. I, I tend to compare that alongside of a default of sort of middle-class mainstream American culture and um i think that you know for us for some people uh jewish life is going to be very attractive because it's going to allow them to continue to be a part of mainstream american culture but to also have some separation from it and participate in some counter countercultural trends especially around parts of american culture that are really unhealthy I also I find it interesting that you're talking about a comparison to 
um, from progressive Judaism to mainstream society instead of one thing that I've heard pretty commonly is like progressive Judaism versus orthodoxy mm-hmm. um, like that's the extreme not um, not I guess society as a whole how come you don't really compare to orthodoxy well I guess I think for most North American Jews who aren't orthodox the competing options that they experience for sort of which communities and subgroups to spend their time with and which beliefs and practices to embrace that they're they're likely to compare liberal Judaism with mainstream secular-ish American culture with maybe groovy Buddhist meditative community options with or maybe with like Unitarianism Um, like people who are the vast majority of people who are liberal Jews or grew up as liberal Jews are not people who end up seriously considering what I would call more fundamentalist approaches to Mm -hmm. religion. So they're not the vast majority of them aren't going to decide I'm going to spend the next year seriously exploring Orthodox Judaism. They're also not going to go to a conservative evangelical church and get baptized and um, really just embrace that. You know, like uh, only a few people will do that. The vast majority of them are going to be consciously or unconsciously kind of considering how how much do I want to be involved with local Jewish stuff they're going to be weighing that against the other sort of naturally organically comfortable feeling communities of meaning that are present for them in their daily lives and that's going to be stuff like you know interest groups um, in their immediate community that they're drawn to or political uh, convictions that they share or alternatives to Judaism as far as religion and spirituality go that are also um, kind of um, non-authoritarian and open to lots of interpretation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wasn't making that that comparison. I, I think that the, the experience that people have who are part of orthodox communities, um, if we're talking about Judaism or who are part of um, very conservative and traditional denominations, if we're talking about other religions, um, I think that their questions and experiences are in some ways hugely different and and that their choices are, are um, the choices that seem real and, and attractive to most folks who grew up or at present are in those kinds of communities are just going to be really different. And- I mean, I guess I'm one of those who quasi explored orthodoxy in my in my early early twenties, and and the feeling of community that you get, especially somebody coming from you know more or less a secular background, it's very powerful. It feels very countercultural in some ways, and 
the sense of, of, of mission and purpose is also very, you know, very powerful. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, I mean, the language might not be the same as evangelical language or like the blues brothers where we're on a mission from God, but there, there is, there is some of that. And, and, and I don't know how to, you know, how do, um, how do you reconstructionist reform, um, future unaffiliated, um, whatever, whatever comes next. I mean, how does it compete with that or offer, offer a similar kind of purpose and community? I mean, that's, Right. I don't know that I don't know that anybody has the answer yet, but is that But to you, Rabbi. To you, yes. <laughs> let's uh let's solve it all here. Like I think that's just a that's a really difficult thing to figure out. And I think the answer to that probably has to do with change that would be necessary in North American society as a whole. Um the default in North American society, particularly the US, is is to live, you know, lives that are highly individualistic, mm-hmm. um, right? We don't have very many default patterns that sort of create structures that organically support um, tightly knit communities. Um, I mean, from what I hear, we used to have more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it went hand in hand with Jim Crow and <laughs> right oh, but but we did but we did there were way more communities where neighborhoods and towns were much tighter um, and just being alive there created some of those same experiences of intimacy and community and purpose um, so that's really eroded and we've you know we're a hyper individualistic society so I think liberal forms of religion in that kind of society are going to end up having participants who are also sort of caught up in the currents of a hyper-individualistic society and much more traditional religious groups, especially if they form like a little bit of a geographical enclave even, um, they're going to be a countercultural bulwark against some some of that. And I don't have... I don't have ready answers. I do think that it's important to honor and respect the gifts of other uh, other religious groups practice. So, um, you know, there's I can't remember his name, but there was some famous Christian theologian from Harvard who coined the term spiritual envy. Um, and it was his way of trying to be a religious pluralist. And, and his point was, when I sometimes when I'm doing interfaith stuff and I encounter something really beautiful or awe-inspiring in a different religion, I'll have a moment of spiritual envy. And he sort of went on to describe um, learning to embrace that as as just a just to be humble before it and and appreciate it. And so I actually think that one of the best things I can do as a Jew is allow myself to experience some spiritual envy of the fact that most Orthodox communities do have um, do have certain things, certain things that have to do with community um, and intimacy um, that are awfully hard to find anywhere in American society and that are and that are worth admiring, even if there really isn't a way to come up with like 
the right grant and the right program to goose liberal American Jews into some kind of similar uniting configure. You know what I mean? Like I just I, I I'm a big believer in that that it's hard to fight the natural flow of the way things are going. It's a lot easier to look at ways to um, redirect whatever the natural flow is, maybe a few degrees um, towards towards a much greater purpose. But to actually completely, you know, re- redirect or get get a get massive trends to sort of 180 or make a perpendicular left turn and go somewhere else, um, I just think I don't think that works. I'm kind of curious as you're saying this, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, our RRC Jewish Reconstructionist communities do, we have um, synagogues that are Reconstructionist synagogues, and one of your roles here at the institution is that's, I mean, those are the people that you work with, and there's a lot of these congregations that are trying to figure out, because for a long time, the synagogue had, um, you know, people who went to the synagogue had those traditions that um, and those habits that tied them together. And now we are very individualistic. And I think synagogues are trying to figure out how to, you know, I think there's still, I think, a hope that somehow they can make a compelling case for people to join, keep, you know, keep the synagogue alive and join um, and somehow find that, um, unity again, but like you said, it's you can't really just do a 180. And even the people who are really advocating for this are people who are part of very many communities themselves. I'm kind of curious what you kind of see as what the new Jewish community looks like based on your work. And, you know, you were also a congregational rabbi for almost a decade. Um, so you and so you've definitely been there while I mean, I think it was American culture very much had changed away from the old ways by the time you were a rabbi or mm-hmm. a pulpit rabbi. But um, so I, I'm sort of focusing on the part of your question that is about what, you know, what do I think might be uh, successful models for. Um, sort of reinvigorated. Do you ever also feel like that as a rabbi, you have to have all the answers too? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I I don't. I I actually I off, but I often do feel like I'm supposed to know where to look to study the issue further. Uh-huh. When I feel crummy, it's it's usually that if I'm um, stuck around um, figuring out where to look, um, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so, okay, like, I think what you're talking about is the fact that a lot of synagogues in our movement and in the other liberal movements are, um, they're either, their their membership levels are flat, some are declining, and some are growing, but, but there's, the overall trend seems to be that it's a harder and harder case to make mm-hmm. to um, ordinary um, middle class and working class Jewish individuals and families um, to not only join synagogues, but then act, you know, have an active life in in Jewish community um, apart from 
you know, Hebrew school slash B'nai Mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm one of these people who I'm actually, I, I worry less about, like, the future of the Jewish people or the or liberal Judaism because because of all this stuff you're talking about. I think I worry less about that than than some of my colleagues. Um, I feel like what we're seeing is that 20th century institutional models are not going to be sustainable. Um, they're also not going to disappear overnight. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 may carry on. For decades, um, and continue to serve a really good purpose, just for a declining percentage of the Jewish population. Um, but at the same time that those 20th century models um, are proving themselves to be kind of you know slowly running out of steam, um, there's throughout this whole transitional period where that's been happening, like over the last 20. 30 years, there's been such a proliferation of of what I would just call uh, varied and robust liberal Jewish expression and life. Um, it's just not appearing in the same containers. So just for instance, um, in the past 30 years, I don't have the data, but th- there's this explosion of Jewish studies departments at colleges and universities all across North America. And what that has in turn resulted in has is an explosion in scholarship and professors and writing and in the percentage of Americans of any faith background who've taken a college course to learn about Judaism. Um, so, um, you know, there's that. Uh, as crappy as North American Hebrew schools have been um, over many, many decades, <laughs> there is one way that they've changed um, Jewish life um, that's radical and that rarely gets discussed, which is that, you know, until until you got to the late 20th century or the middle of the 20th century, girls weren't getting a Jewish education. Not, not or I mean, they were getting a very limited and focused one, um, but... You know, liberal Judaism has completely changed that. I mean, the the fact that you've now got, you know, multiple generations of girls for whom the norm is I go to Hebrew school. I resent going to Hebrew school. (laughs) Nevertheless, I learn. um, I learn some things and I actually experience a bat mitzvah. And, And then, you know, later on as an adult, there's a, a chance that I become an active member of of Jewish life. And even if I don't become a fully active member, there's a pretty strong chance that I identify positively and that I continue to and that I'm more knowledgeable than I might otherwise have been. So we, we've sort of, you know, we measure the statistics that make us worry and then we like remeasure them 500 times um, and we f- have failure of imagination, I think, a lot to measure the the places where things are growing quite organically. Um, so, right, one other thing, I'll, example I'll mention is in, in the internet era, the proliferation of, of Jewish resources online is astounding. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Rabbi Google. The well, forget Rabbi Rabbi Google. I'm I'm talking about things like the Open Sidur Project or mm-hmm. Safaria. I mean, these are websites that are using, you know, sort of the wiki model um, and and open sourcing, um, knowledgeable, informed open sourcing to build huge online archives of liturgy, text study, and then text study with different English translations and with links to presentations that are five minutes long where somebody's helping someone who has no Hebrew understand what this is. I mean, nobody's measuring all of that and saying this is also Jewish life or liberal Jewish life, and it's growing at an astonishing rate. How successful we are, um, like, do you know what I mean? And and the, the, the reason I think people aren't measuring that is because that stuff happens without anybody becoming a member of anything. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like not very it's not much consolation to synagogues, movements and JCCs because they might be happy that there's organic Jewish life sprouting up all over the place, but if it's not linked to any kind of income stream for supporting those institutions, then it means those institutions are eventually going to have to shut down. I mean, I didn't come prepped with um, with the 2013 Pew study, but there there must have been some things in there that that concerns you, right? In terms of um, you know parents raising their children Jewish, kids, people identifying as as I mean, I didn't. This these have been done to. Is you that know, the most the recent death. one? I haven't. I, I would think remember. so. Yeah. I think 2013 was yeah. it. It definitely was the study that that shook up so many congregations. I remember even my own synagogue in uh, little rural New Jersey was yeah. looking at this study, going, "Oh my gosh, you know, we're we're our institutions are in trouble." But I also remembered seeing in the report how many people were, you know, proud to identify as Jewish. Right. I mean, it wasn't. Um, I think in a time where we had a much anti-Semitism, you know, not a lot of people wanted to advertise that or it was almost like a very secretive yeah. thing where now, um, you know, people are very proud to be Jewish, but the institutions are um, are not quite where they want to express that Judaism. In um, mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because when that study came out, uh, not when it came out, but um, I was working for the nonprofit Interfaith Family mm-hmm. around the time that that study was starting to really get a lot of attention. And um, the former CEO and founder of Interfaith Family did a lot of writing um, about it. And the this is that case, Ed right? Case. Mm-hmm. And. So and I and of course there was a lot on on the rabbinic list serve I'm a part of about it and there was an awful lot in that study. One of the things that that Ed pointed out about the study and that I also noticed was that um, it showed very positive trend lines in terms of uh, the percentages of kids in interfaith households who were identifying. Jewishly, um, and it specifically showed very positive trends when 
communities like Boston were measured on their own. And Boston's a community where their Jewish Federation over about 20 years ago decided to invest very, very heavily in, um, in welcoming and outreach and training um, across the community. And they were able to see measurable changes in, in attitudes. So, you know, the other, the other kinds of statistics that don't always get brought up are, chew on this one for a moment, <laughs> the percentage of Americans who are not Jewish but who now have a reasonably close relative who is has gone through the roof um, in the last 25 years. So, um, and I can, so I, what do we do with that stat? I mean, that stat could mean many different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people are arguing that we should be studying that. We should be looking at what does it mean for such a, a, a growing number of Americans who aren't Jewish to be learning more than they ever would have about Judaism, to be feeling um, ties of, of love, family, and those kinds of bonds with people who are Jewish. You know, I mean, maybe it's partly one of the reasons why support, American support for Israel is always polls well. Um, it doesn't seem to drop. Um, you know, despite uh, you would think it might drop with a supposedly slowly declining Jewish population and with, you know, difficult headlines and, 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 and some bad press, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I'm speculating. But I also just share a personal anecdote. So my, my wife, Melissa, is a Jew by choice and mm-hmm. her extended family um, are rural people who have mostly worked in logging and um, a little bit of ranching. And they live in one of the most sparsely populated counties in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's one of only a handful of counties that are still classified as frontier. Um, so I'm the, f- well, I'm the first born Jewish person almost all of them have ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and most most of them are very very conservative evangelicals, um, and you know, over the course of close to twenty years of going to family gatherings, and you know, hanging out with them and and making a point of being um, personable and open and um, etc. Like I'm part of their family now. Mm-hmm. Like it's the, it's just come about now. Like it's it, there's no more awkwardness, um, and you know they're and they don't seem particularly wigged out by, you know, by Melissa having chosen to be Jewish, and that's what I'm talking about. Like that's happening. So it's not like Judaism. Again. It's not like Judaism is dying. It's well, it's I think it's I think it's from. that we don't know as much as we may think we know. That, that it's hard to know which things to measure. And ha- and then how to then take all the data and and try to guess what the future looks like. It's even harder to figure out how do we restructure institutions so that so that they benefit are going with the flow and and enhancing Jewish life within the context that's here. Because we can't guilt people into. Um, 
shoring up 20th century based Jewish institutions. Oh, come and, on, and Rabbi. <laughs> and we also can't task them to function as like a bulwark against it, trends that are, you know, that are just going to overwhelm them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, those are questions I don't have the answers to. That's why I say that I'm, I'm, I worry less than I think a lot of people, I, but I'm also not like blindly optimistic. I, I'm profoundly uncertain uh, about what, what the future holds. It's, I think it's very hard to guess. I'll I'll open a total can of worms as we're yeah. as we're wrapping up. Why not? Just to, More, just to, we love worms. Just to throw <laughs> I throw, don't know. throw a wrench in everybody's day. So, um, Maurice and I have gotten into really interesting conversations about about Israel. Um, this is I also think, why Maurice doesn't really leave his office that much right, anymore. <laughs> he doesn't right. come eat lunch with us anymore. Uh, He's just <laughs> and it just really. I mean, I think. We, we share a lot of assumptions. We, we might have some disagreements. I think I might be a little bit to the right of him. He might be a little bit to the left of me. We haven't measured this, but. I also want to throw in here also, and I think this is kind of the point that you're getting at as well, is that even though that you don't wasn't necessarily. Clear. <laughs> that wasn't a clear point. <laughs> like the fact that you don't always agree on everything, but you can have these great conversations together and, um, you know, you still have this immense respect for one another. And it's very easy to see um, sitting in the room with you guys, seeing you guys in the hallway. Um, and one of the things that you've been really working on now in the movement, I know you've taught uh, workshops about this and you have um, I've you've put out different resources about this to um, especially to our community leaders to kind of talk about how do you manage um, to have these civilized conversations uh, when you are at opposite ends of the spectrum and still walk away with respect for each other at the end of the day, which I think it's not even just just a Jewish problem. Mm-hmm. It's I, I feel like it's a world problem that mm-hmm. we're having right now. There mm-hmm. is no there is less of that respect for the other side. So how do you how do you go about teaching that or what is your approach um, in those conversations with yeah. Brian? So to me it's I mean part of I appreciate your question and I think being able to do that to be able to talk and debate and uh, with a friend, right? That, that's a that's a so a human social skill set that, you know, certainly Jewish tradition teaches is is one of the most important um, social ethical pieces uh, of all. Um, and and it's and outside of Jewish tradition, I think there's many other wisdom traditions that say the same. And uh, I mean, our entire rabbinic text tradition is based on sacred disagreement and debate and um, opinions that are completely at odds with each other being preserved um, in in the text um, even when they're even when votes are taken even when majorities have ruled and 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 practices are set according to one way of thinking uh, minority viewpoints are preserved and studied and um, and it's not just that. It, I would say rabbinic texts even go further than that. Rabbinic texts include long discourses of different rabbis looking to explain and prove somebody else's opinion that they may not even agree with and 
come up with multiple ways to prove that opinion and then come up with multiple ways to prove it wrong. And, um, and that exercise, it rep, to me, represents a set of values, a, a set of values that says this is a, this is a, this is a positive thing for people to do, that, that it is positive and growthful for people to be willing and able to challenge their thinking and test their reasoning uh, rigorously and in, in multiple contexts and to accept at the end of the day that it may be that there's a decision that's going to get made. It may be made by a majority and it may be made by a majority that I don't fully agree with, um, but I'm committed to remaining part of the community and I can trust that the majority is not going to move into like tyranny over me as somebody who happens to, you know, hold a minority viewpoint. And that's a model that I think the Talmud and rabbinic literature sort of puts forward um, and holds up as an ideal. And um, I see this as one of the crucial ways that 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 I think Judaism can serve the purpose of being a positive countercultural force to to the toxic trends of, um, you know, polarization of politics, polarization of thought um, that are that are that have overtaken our society, and um, and it it saddens me a lot to see those trends seep into organized Jewish life because. Judaism is really good at, 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 a, at a handful of things. And one of the things it's really good at is, is putting forward this model of civil discourse. Mm -hmm. um, so to see that erode as a result of this, you know, toxicity that we're all living in in our wider culture, that, that makes me really sad. What does Judaism do? I think we just brought, he just brought us full circle. Wow. Yeah. I didn't mean to. <laughs> Um, the Accidental Rabbi. Isn't that your blog that also? That is my blog. So, yeah. so check out the Accidental Rabbi as well. Uh, was it on on WordPress? What's the website? It is WordPress. Oh, it's theaccidentalrabbi.wordpress.com. What's the best way to for someone to buy uh, buy one of your books? Just send a check for two thousand five hundred dollars. <laughs> oh, never mind. Um, you can just Google. Maurice D. Harris, and then either the word Moses or the word Leviticus, and it, you will end up on some vending website where you can buy my books if we'll, you want. We'll put a link on the website. How about that? Okay. That's we can good. do that as well. And I think you also have another book coming out too, right? Hopefully. Uh, I have another book that I'm contracted to finish by the end of this year, <gasps> and I'm trying to get it done, but... It's been a busy year. Well, well let us uh, have you have you back when it may us may us live to do many seasons, and we'll have you back when uh, when we've we've got the book. Look at you blessing us and giving Maurice yes. a break. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for the next episode of Trending Jewish. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Really, I'm not just saying that. Leave us a rating or review in iTunes, or send us an email at drumroll trendingjewish at gmail.com we actually made our own email address I did not know you could do that 
And it's not AOL. Look at that. Oh, 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 you had to go there. Um, Also, for more information on this week's episode, including where to purchase Rabbi Maurice Harris's books, you can visit our website at trendingjewish.fireside.fm. And to learn more on what's trending in Reconstructing Judaism and the larger Jewish world, be sure to check out reconstructingjudaism.org. In the meantime, Litrot, Shalom, um, go make the world a better place and seek out meaningful experiences. Mm-hmm.